Some of you older folks might be able to recall and place the name Layman Strauss. He was a well-known author and radio preacher uh, during the mid-20th century. He also happened to be the founding pastor of the church that I grew up in, Calvary Baptist Church in Bristol, Pennsylvania. Now, I never knew him as my pastor, Pastor Strauss. We used last names back then. He moved on from Calvary well before I was born. However, he would occasionally guest preach at my church when I was a kid. And I just happened to be present for the very last sermon that he ever preached at Calvary. In fact, it was the the very last sermon that he preached anywhere as he passed away just a few short days later. It was Sunday, June 1st, 1997. I was 17 years old at the time. Now, I do not remember much of that sermon, but what one story he shared that morning has stuck with me all these years, and I'd like to share it with you this morning. As previously mentioned, Pastor Strauss was an author and radio personality, and as such, he had a vibrant ministry of itinerant preaching. He, He traveled across the country and around the world proclaiming the truth of God's Word. In fact, he was a regular fixture here in New Hampshire up at Rumney Bible Conference when that was in his heyday. So he was once asked to provide pulpit supply for a a somewhat theologically liberal church. And upon his arrival to this church, he noticed something odd. He noticed something wasn't quite right. He noticed something was off. Waiting patiently in the pews while the organ droned on, he looked around and he noticed there were no Bibles. There were no Bibles. There were no Bibles in the pews. There were no little old ladies carrying Bibles in homemade crocheted covers. There were no old men carrying large print Bibles, the text of which can be clearly seen from the surface of our moon. There were no little girls and little boys carrying copies of the New Testament and the Psalms. There were no Bibles. There were no Bibles anywhere to be found. So... After a gracious introduction, Pastor Strauss assumed his position behind the pulpit and quite boldly said, Will you please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of? That's bold, right? That's bold. And we're currently in a series called True North. And in this series, we are exploring the truths that define us theologically. You see, what we believe matters. The the timeless truths we cling to provide us with a fixed point of reference as we navigate the ebb and flow of this ever-changing world. Now, I'm sure you're aware that it is the desire of the elders to align ourselves as a church with the Evangelical Free Church of America. Now, we want to forge this alliance in part Because we believe this alliance will will keep our doctrinal orientation firmly fixed on True North. Now, throughout the True North series, we're exploring the EFCA's statement of faith. Currently, we're exploring the statement concerning the Bible. Let's take a look at that statement right now. We believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired Word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of His will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises." In last week's sermon, Pastor Brian explored the completeness or the sufficiency of, of God's Word. And in this week's sermon, we're going to explore the message of God's Word. But before we do that, let it open in a word of prayer. To know and to be known... Lord, you have given us your word that we may know you. 
And so in the study of your word this morning, we pray that you would increase our knowing. And in doing so, give life to our mortal bodies. Sanctifying life, we pray in your name. Amen. All right, so take your Bibles and turn with me to the epistle of John, 1 John, to not be confused with the Gospel of John. If you know where the Gospel of John is, just keep going. Go past Paul's epistles. Eventually, you'll land on 1 John. If you get to Revelation, you went too far. Okay, 1 John, we're going to be in chapter 1. We're going to start off by looking at verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are, wait- and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. In these verses, the Apostle John makes four assertions. He makes four assertions. I'm going to give you these assertions up front, and then we'll unpack them uh, each one by one. First, what was from the beginning was manifested. What was manifested was witnessed. What was witnessed was proclaimed. What was proclaimed was the word of life. Let's take a look at the first one. What was from the beginning was manifested. Scripture records three beginnings. Most notably in Genesis 1.1, right? Boldly proclaims that in the beginning God created. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, right? Then the Apostle John echoes these words in his gospel writing when he says that in the beginning the Word. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Good. Now, here in 1 John, the apostle echoes himself, writing, that which was from the beginning, the word of life, was made manifest. Now, each one of these verses evokes the dawn of creation. Why, why is it so important that we have this evocation? Why, why does John feel it necessary to start his proclamation of his message with an appeal to creation? The answer is found in the term that we translate word. I used this, or I explained this to you in a a recent sermon over the past year. The the Bible is an ancient book, right? It's an ancient book written by ancient people to other ancient people in an ancient language, and that language is Greek. The term that we translate as word is logos, which is the Greek word for reason, John appropriated Logos from the ancient Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle. You see, for hundreds of years before the time of Christ, the the Greeks were looking for for the unifying principle. That's a fancy way of saying they, they were looking for something to explain all of existence. They were looking for the Logos. They were looking for the reason. The reason for what? The reason for everything. You can think of it as this way, the the reason for life. What's the meaning of life? So so by coming along and appropriating this term, John is in effect saying, hey, you know how you guys have been looking for the reason? Guess what? I found it. I found it. It's right over here. Come take a look. So so John starts with the beginning. He he locates the word, the logos, at the epicenter of space and time. Why? Why? Well, because the word, the logos, the reason for everything is what lays the groundwork for, you guessed it, everything. In his commentary on 1 John, J. Vernon McGee, another old-time preacher, uh, he, he notes that until you are ready to accept 
Genesis 1.1, you're not ready to read on because everything God says hangs on the words, in the beginning God created. Absolutely everything hangs on that. By starting with the beginning, John is emphasizing the transcendent nature of his message, right? God, or uh, Pastor Brian talked about this a couple weeks ago in one of his sermons, that God is transcendent. That means he's above and beyond the created order. He stands outside of it. Why? Because he created it. He created it. By starting with the beginning, John is emphasizing the transcendent nature of his message. Every word that God has to speak to us is absolutely and unequivocally paramount because God is absolutely and unequivocally preeminent. Incidentally, this is why the E-free statement of faith concludes that Scripture is the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. The word, the logos, the reason is the linchpin on which all of existence hangs. What was from the beginning, the Logos, was manifested. And what was manifested was witnessed. Look at verse 1 with me. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. In these verses, the apostle is echoing his own words from the gospel of John when he says, in the beginning was the word, the logos, the reason, and the reason was with God, and the reason was God, and the reason became flesh and dwelt among us. Both, both in his gospel and his, in his epistle, John places a strong emphasis on the sensory experience. He places an extremely strong emphasis on the sensory experience. He emphatically states that he heard, saw, and touched the word of life incarnate, the reason manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, many scholars note that, that John is so emphatic about his personal experience that, that liter, literally speaking, it's kind of awkward. It makes for an awkward few sentences. This passage kind of reads like a tongue twister. He heard, he saw, he touched. He heard, he saw, he touched. He repeats this sentiment seven times in three verses. Seven times in three verses. That just begs the question. What's the big deal, John? What's the big deal? Why does it matter? Why is this sensory experience so important to John? And maybe more importantly, why should it be of any importance to us? Why should we care? It's John's experience, not mine. Why should we care? Well, look, think about it this way. Every movie about Santa Claus is really a movie about belief. Every movie about Santa Claus is really a movie about belief. Why? Well, because in every movie about Santa Claus, there is always that one person who doesn't believe in Santa, right? There's always that one person who doesn't believe in Santa. In Miracle on 34th Street, it's the mom. In Elf, it's Buddy's dad who doesn't believe in Santa. In the Santa Claus, it's ironically Santa who doesn't believe in Santa. In Die Hard, it's, it's Hans Gruber who doesn't believe in Santa. In every movie about Santa Claus, there's that one person who doesn't believe. There's that one person who doesn't believe. But then what happens? What happens to that one person? The unbeliever has an encounter with Santa. They have an encounter with Santa. They hear him. Ho, ho, ho. They see him. Right? They, they walk into the living room just in time to see him shoot up the chimney. They touch him. Right? They poke his belly and watch it wiggle like a bowl full of jelly. Very vivid picture, correct? They hear him. They see him. They touch him. And they are changed. They have an experience with him. They hear him, they see him, and they touch him, and they are transformed from unbeliever to true believer. 
Oh, listen, why does every child inevitably stop believing in Santa? Why does every child inevitably stop believing in Santa? Why would you be hard-pressed to find a rational adult anywhere in the world today who believes in Santa? Well, for one simple reason, he's not real. He's not real. How do we know he's not real? Because no one has ever heard Santa. No one's ever heard Santa. No one has ever seen him. No one has ever touched him. Why would you be hard-pressed to find a rational adult anywhere in the world who believes in Santa? Because he's not real. In contrast... In contrast, why does 31% of the world's population, over two and a half billion people, two and a half billion reasonably rational people, believe in Jesus Christ? By the way, that's not the corridors of history. That is present, walking on the face of the earth right now, two and a half billion people who believe in Jesus Christ. Why? 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 Because he's real. Because he's real. And how do we know he's real? Well, because he was heard. Because he was seen. Because he was touched. Because what was from the beginning was made manifest. You'd be hard-pressed to find a rational adult who believes in Santa because in the depth and the breadth of human history, Santa has no credible witnesses. None. But what about Jesus? Well, what was from the beginning was manifested. What was manifested was witnessed. And what was witnessed was proclaimed. Look down at verse 2 with me. Life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The disciples heard Jesus. They heard him. The disciples heard the call of Jesus. They watched him turn the water into wine. They tasted the miracle drink on their own lips. The disciples heard the sermon on the mount. They watched him multiply the bread and they carried the baskets of leftovers. The disciples shook Jesus awake in the back of the boat. They heard him rebuke the storm. They watched the waves settle. Mary, Mary Magdalene, this lady so does not get the respect that she deserves. Mary felt him cast the seven demons out of her. And then in the garden, she heard him speak her name. And through tear-filled eyes, she saw the resurrected Christ. And you know what Mary did next? The very next thing Mary did? Mary went looking for Peter. And in John 20, verse 18, we're told, Mary went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Mary, the demon-plagued prostitute, became the first Christian missionary. She witnessed the risen Christ and she proclaimed, I have seen the Lord. Now, what's so significant about Mary's testimony? Why is her testimony above all others so key? Why would Jesus appear to her before he appears to anyone else? Here's why the testimony of Mary is so important. Scholars and historians alike agree that if you were trying to build a case and persuade people in the ancient Greco-Roman world, the last thing you would do is appeal to the testimony of a woman. In their culture, the testimony of a woman wasn't considered trustworthy. It wasn't even admissible in court. Ladies, we have come a long way, have we not? We've come a long way. 
Now, in the millennia since, many biblical scholars have concluded that there was only one good reason for John to include Mary's testimony. There was only one good reason to to break with social norms and appeal to the testimony of Mary. Only one good reason. It had to be true. It had to be true. John wouldn't have included her testimony if it wasn't true because her testimony wasn't believable. In other words, if you're going to make up a story, you're going to make up a more believable story. You're going to make up a a more believable story. Of course, it wasn't just Mary who testified. The rest of the disciples eventually saw Jesus and they followed in Mary's footsteps. Look at verse 2. Life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now, this raises an important point. This raises an important point. John's emphasis on personal testimony raises an important point. A call to faith in Jesus Christ is not a call to blind faith. A call to faith in Jesus Christ is not a call to blind faith. Blind faith is a romantic notion. Blind faith is a very pious notion. But we have not been called to blind faith. In the Gospel of John, the Apostle notes that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written, why? so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John was writing so that we may believe. John's purpose in writing was to provide credible testimony so that we may believe. A a call to faith in Jesus Christ is not a call to blind faith. A call to faith in Jesus Christ is a call to a reasonable faith. A reasonable faith that considers the facts and makes an informed judgment. John does not call us to blind faith. In fact, Oxford mathematician John Lennox notes that John's gospel shows that Christianity is an evidence-based faith. He's an Oxford mathematician. (laughs) He literally deals in facts all day. And he says that John wrote his gospel to evoke evidence-based faith. Now, you might be wondering yourself this morning, wait a minute, didn't didn't Jesus rebuke Thomas for not having blind faith? Didn't Jesus rebuke Thomas for not having blind faith? I mean, didn't Thomas say that he wouldn't believe in Jesus until he saw him with his own eyes and and touched him with his own hands? And then didn't, didn't Jesus say to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That sounds an awful lot like Jesus is rebuking Thomas for for, for not having blind faith. That is true. Jesus did rebuke Thomas. He did. But it wasn't for, for, for not having blind faith. Jesus rebuked Thomas because he rejected the credible testimony of the other disciples. Not only that, he kind of rejected his own testimony, right? I mean, he had been with Jesus for three years. He had heard, he had seen, he had touched. He had credible testimony, but he rejected it. And in this morning, all of us, we stand in the place of Thomas. In verse 4, John says, We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. We are writing these things down. We are committing them to paper. Resting in your hands this morning is the fruit of John's labor. Resting in your hands this morning is the credible testimony of Mary and the apostles, and it is calling you to have reasonable faith. Now, critics might scoff and say, well, the Bible is a fabrication filled with errors. And Christians may surrender the intellectual high ground in favor of blind faith. But I want to encourage you this morning, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't make an intellectual retreat from a conversation in which you hold the high ground. You hold the high ground. Don't retreat. 
Don't do it. In his commentary on 1 Peter, Dennis Edwards makes the following point. He says, there are two common but misguided sentiments in some quarters of the Christian church regarding the relationship between spirituality and the academic or intellectual life. One is the belief that intellectual pursuits do not benefit the spiritual life. The other is the belief that spirituality is somehow beneath those who are intellectually serious about the literary and historical study of the Bible. Now, Edwards here is pointing out what is called a false dichotomy. One which argues that you are either a person of faith or you are a person of reason. It's either one or the other, but it cannot be both. On the contrary, the Apostle John points us to a faith that is reasonable. But, but let me ask you a question. Is it reasonable to trust John? I mean, it is his book after all, right? Is it reasonable to trust John? Is it reasonable to trust the Bible? Well, I already offered one intellectual proof in the testimony of Mary, but here are a few more. Now, these come from a man named Daniel Wallace. He's a, a Bible scholar and an apologist. I, I think he, at least at one point in time, was connected with Dallas Theological Seminary. He might still be. Um, he heads up a project where he is traveling all over the world um, to, to visit all of the different uh, copies of the New Testament that exist, like the original manuscripts, and he's, he's documenting them. So he's digitizing them to make them more available to scholars. So all this stuff comes from him. Uh, we have what Wallace refers to as an embarrassment of riches. An embarrassment of riches. You see, the average classical author, so Homer, Aristotle, Plato, all those people you had to read in high school and college, the ad average classical author ha has less than 15 copies of his work still in existence today. If you were to stack them up, they would be no more than four feet high off the ground. The earliest copies of these manuscripts date to more than half a millennium after they were written. Over 500 years after they were written, these manuscripts appear. On the other hand, the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament date within decades of the original writing. Decades! And not only that, we have a ton of them. If you were to stack... If you were to stack every New Testament, this is not including the Old Testament, this is just New Testament. If you were to stack every New Testament manuscript on top of each other, they would reach well over a mile and a quarter into the sky. That is over five times higher than the Empire State Building. Now, with all those copies, it, it, it only makes sense that you're going to have some variants, Right? And there are, there are 50,000 variants between the New Testament manuscripts. In all fairness, that sounds like a lot. But here's the thing. Over 99% of these variants are minor errors with no interpretive consequences. In other words, they don't impact the, the meaning of the text one iota. Many of them are nothing more than, than, than spelling errors and typos. Wallace argues that if we were to judge the validity of the classical works by the same critical scholarship used by, uh, used by secular scholars uh, to, to judge the New Testament, society as we know it would be thrust back into the dark ages. That's encouraging, isn't it? It's encouraging, right? Did you, did you know that there was all those proofs for Scripture? Did you, did you know that the, the, the Bible is, 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 critically speaking, that trustworthy? That should be really encouraging to you. Now, I do want to warn you, though. You're in for a rude awakening if you charge the halls, the hallowed halls of Harvard Seminary armed only with those factoids. The most incompetent of their liberal scholars would tear you to shreds. My point this morning isn't to equip you for that discussion. My point is simply this. Don't, don't ever let anyone tell you that your faith is a fairy tale. Don't ever let anyone tell you that your faith is a fairy tale. It is totally reasonable. It is totally rational 
God's word is intellectually trustworthy. It is through God's word that we hear the testimony of what was proclaimed. And what was proclaimed was the word of life. Look down at verse 3 with me. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. In verse 1, John identifies the subject of his message, the word of life. In our remaining verses, he identifies the nature of his message. And what we see is that John's message is an invitation into community and transformation. John's message is an invitation into community and transformation. First, John's message is an invitation into community. John extends the highest and most prestigious invitation that anyone could ever receive. We are invited into fellowship with God. We are invited to, divine, to, to dine with the divine reason. He who is the pinnacle of all reality calls us friend. That's amazing. That's amazing. Earlier, scripture reading was read, stated, what, what is man that you should be mindful of him? Yet, you've made him a little lower than the angels and given him a place of honor. We all not take that for granted. We all not take this invitation for granted. We are invited to dine with the divine. That's amazing. Now, I've seen this meme floating around Facebook this week. Uh, you might have seen it. It's a picture of a, a park bench with a, a simple question. If you were to spend one hour sitting at this park bench with anyone, who, who would it be? Provoking question, good question. Being in New England, I imagine that at least one person in this room would answer Tom Brady. At least those of you who aren't completely jaded like Carol is. Right? Probably one of us would answer Tom Brady. And you know, that would be pretty cool. That would be pretty cool to sit down with Tom, you know, for an hour, maybe two, maybe even a whole day. But at some point, you would get kind of bored with Tom. At some point, you would get kind of bored with Tom. Why? How could we possibly get bored with Tom? He's the GOAT. He has seven Super Bowl rings. How could we possibly get bored with Tom? Uh, I was having breakfast with Dylan Tremor uh, earlier this week. And we got to talking about the pitfalls of fame. And, and Dylan made an interesting observation. Dylan said, you know why Tom Brady keeps playing? Because all he has is the next ring. And one day he's going to be too old to chase the next ring. And eventually all his achievements will fade into oblivion. I might have taken some artistic liberties with that paraphrase. But that's basically what he said. That's basically what he said. It was a keen observation. You see, it would be good to spend an hour with Tom, maybe a day, but Tom is finite, and eventually we would get bored with him. Why? Because Tom is not the reason. He's not the reason. Jesus, on the other hand, is the reason, and because he is the reason, he is infinite. We could never get bored with him. The fellowship we have in him is beyond anything we can experience in the created order. Now, it's important to note, while we are invited into a personal relationship with Jesus, and, and we totally affirm that here, as evangelicals, I mean, we are steeped in that as, as core to identity, that we believe you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. 
But it's important to note, while we are invited into a personal relationship with Jesus, we are not invited into an exclusive relationship with Jesus. John makes it clear that our fellowship with Christ is rooted in the greater fellowship of believers. And why is this so important? Why is this so important? If you remain, if you want to remain connected to Christ, you have to remain connected to his community, the church. If you want to remain connected to Christ, you have to remain connected to his community. And his community is the church. His community is your fellow Christians. Pastor Brian recently referenced the famous quote from Gandhi. Uh, once I've referenced it myself. In an interview with a visiting missionary, um, Gandhi allegedly said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Well, Mr. Gandhi, too bad. Too bad. Because if you want the Christ, then you have to accept his Christians. The good, the bad, the ugly. You have to. Listen, none of us are are Christians because of our moral merit. We are Christians because of Christ's moral merit. And he died on the cross to suffer for our sins and take that blame upon him. Why? So that we could live with the reason. So that we could receive the word of life. Incidentally, I've often heard people say, well, my friend group is, is where I get my Christian fellowship. My friend group is, is where I get my Christian fellowship. Well, there's only one problem with that. Your friend group is typically made up of people you like. It's made up of people you like. The church is made up of some people you like and a whole lot of people you can't stand. And it's all part of God's design. It's all part of God's design. The prophets and the apostles laid the foundation of the church and Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. God has sovereignly designed the church with people you can't stand for one specific reason, to ensure that you know that you are not the center of his universe. We have been invited into the fellowship of the church for one glorious purpose, to glorify the King of kings and the Lord of lords and to edify our fellow believers. The call of God has precious little to do with our people preferences. Why are you sharing the same pew with that person who just grates on your nerves? Because God wants to use that person to make you more like Jesus. That's why. He he wants to make you as loving as he is loving. And in order to do that, He will put people and force you into fellowship that you don't necessarily want to be in. Now, I'm going to get a little old school on you here. I I think I've been reading a little too much Charles Spurgeon and listening to a little too much Alistair Begg because I feel kind of angsty. So I'm going to get a little more, a little old school on you this morning. Staying home from church should be the exception, not the rule. Staying home from church should be the exception, not the rule. I do not wish to be dogmatic about this, but how can we edify the body of Christ and be edified by the body of Christ if we are seeking the gathering of the body of Christ? Listen, there are little old ladies, members of this church, little old ladies who are members of this church who will move heaven and hell to be here this morning if their aged, weakened legs would only let them. Instead, they are stuck in the bed of a nursing home. They would crawl through the lens of that camera right now if only they could. But we can't show up because there was a frost and we have to scrape our windshield. Or it's too cold outside. We had a little too much to drink last night and now we have to sleep it off. It's okay, we can make the 1045 live stream. Or whatever the inconvenient reason is. Is. 
Believer, listen, there is something so much bigger than we can imagine. So something bigger than our paychecks. Something bigger than our educations. Something bigger than our families. Man, family is like one of the biggest forms of idolatry in America today. We, we have this like loyalty to family that surpasses everything else, including our loyalties to God. Jesus said, I, I came here to separate. I came here to separate children and parents. Man, there's something so much bigger going on. Bigger than our education, bigger than our families, bigger than our hobbies. We have been invited into fellowship with the reason. And the reason has invited us into fellowship with each other. Let's not take that fellowship for granted. Let's not take for granted what what cost Christ his life to forge. Listen, a time may very well come in this country when all our freedoms are taken away. A time when all our inalienable rights prove to be totally inalienable. And what will you do then? What will you do then? You might have Jesus, but you won't have the fellowship of the believers. You might have Jesus, but you won't have the church. You'll be alone. That is a sad and a scary prospect. I'll digress and conclude with this. Not only is John's message an invitation into community, it's an invitation into transformation. It's an invitation into transformation. Look down at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word is not in us. Here there are five if statements. Five if statements. We don't have the time this morning to go through each one. I, typical Dan fashion, I think I bit off a little bit more than I can chew. <laughs> but I can provide you with a brief summation. There are five if statements here. Three of them are negative and two of them are positive. Each of these statements makes the point that walking in the light of God will have a transformative impact on our lives. It will have a transformative impact on our lives. Remember, it's an invitation. In 10,000 Fathers Worship School, the worship school that I went through, um, there's a common phrase there, and it's high invitation, high challenge. High invitation, high, Im- high challenge. We're going to, to invite you into our community. We're going to invite you into our homes. We're, we're, we're going to invite you into our study of God's word. We're going to feed you. We're going, to, we're going to shelter you. But all of that comes at a cost. That's a high invitation, so it gives us the permission to challenge you. High invitation, high challenge. And that invitation is nowhere near as high as the invitation that we have in Christ. There is not a king or a queen, a football player, or any celebrity, any great thinker in this world whose invitation to you could be higher than Christ's invitation to you. It's high invitation. High invitation. And high invitation comes with high challenge. If we approach God's word in order to get to know him better, It will chafe us like a pair of tight, wet jeans. It will be uncomfortable. 
Why? Because it's transformative. It's saying, you can't stay where you are. If you come to know me, then you're going to have to become like me. This isn't a legalistic thing. It's not like just about a list of do's and don'ts. Well, I'll check all these boxes and then I'll know. He does the work. He does all the hard transforming work. All we have to do is be present, to show up, to open his word, and he will renew our minds. He will transform us from the inside out. If we walk in the light, if we walk in the presence of the reason, we will be transformed as the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from our sins. That's transformation. If we confess our sins, right? We don't stay in them. We don't sit in them. We don't deny them. We confess them. Then he will forgive us and he will transform us. How? By cleansing us from all unrighteousness. He transforms us. If we walk with God, he will transform us. That's why John says in, 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 in the next chapter, in verse 2, or sorry, chapter 2, verse 3, he says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The, the message of the word of life is an invitation into fellowship. Fellowship with the reason. But it's also an invitation into transformation. And if we want to accept the invitation into, into fellowship with the reason, then we have to accept the invitation to transformation. We have to. It's got to have an impact on us. It's got to have an impact on us. And it's got to impact us because there's no way, right, after the fall, none of us is perfectly in line with God, correct? Even the most mature Christian still strays from God. So the assumption is we have to get in line with him. So then the assumption is we have to change. There has got to be a change. Our, our faith in Christ has got to produce a change in us. So a lot of people today have an a la carte view of God. Right? They have this a la carte view of God. Where I'll pick and choose the God I want. I will pick and choose the God I want. People will say, does your God affirm my view of gender identity? Because I can't possibly believe in a God who doesn't affirm my identity. Or, does your God affirm my view of social justice? Because I can't possibly believe in a God who doesn't affirm my view of social justice. We hear this all the time, right? The list goes on and on and on. I can't possibly believe in a God who would let little puppies die. We hear these things all the time. But here's the thing. Any God that you create, right? Because that's what we're doing. We're taking all our, 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 our suppositions and we're, 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 we're creating a God in our own image. And the problem with that is any God you create is going to be smaller than you. So you can't possibly be your God. You can't possibly be your God. This goes on and on and on with these sort of things. But here's the thing. When you ask these sorts of questions, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question. Instead, you have to wrestle with the question, is it, and this is where we come back to the Bible, this is the question you have to wrestle with. Is it reasonable to conclude based on all the available evidence that the God of the Bible is indeed the God of the universe? Is it reasonable to conclude, based on all the available evidence, that the God of the Bible is indeed the God of the universe? If you answer that question, yes. If you place your faith, your reasonable faith in him, if you walk in the light of his presence, he might not give you the answer he, you want, but he will transform you into his likeness. So all these questions, especially, I mean, like, we're in a post-Christian nation right now, Right? And so we have all these huge philosophical questions, all these things, and it's legitimate. It's legitimate. Kids are confused today. It's legitimate that they're confused. It is hard for them to find an anchor. It is hard for them to find an anchor. Be patient with your children's questions. It's tough. It is. It absolutely is. 
But all of those questions, all of those questions are beside the point. The question that we really have to answer is the God of the Bible, the God of the universe. Because I don't get to create the God of the universe. He gets to create me. And if the God of the Bible is the God of the universe, then I need to come in line with his word. How do we know God? We know him from the Bible. I hope I have made a compelling case for that this morning. How do we know that we know him? We are transformed into the likeness of his word and we keep his commandments. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, once again, we thank you that you have made yourself known to us. Lord, I remember being a little boy in 1987, seven years old, at a Jack Van Oompe crusade hearing the gospel for what seemed like the first time. And you spoke so clearly to me that night. I had an encounter with you in your word and you began a transformative work. And Lord, I know there are many other people in this room who have a similar story. Lord, for them, I pray that you would continue that transformative work as you have continued mine. And Lord, for those who are maybe just seeing you for the first time in your word, Lord, I pray that you would begin that transformative process here in this room this morning. Lord, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you that you are known that we are known and that we have fellowship with the word, the logos, the reason of all existence. Amen.